We are continuing our vision series entitled We Are Coral Ridge. And we introduced our new vision a few weeks ago, and it's in your bulletin. Uh, But our vision here, what we aspire to be as a church, is a church that is gospel-centered, offering hope to all people in South Florida through the ministry of reconciliation and renewal. And every week we've been unpacking. We started a few weeks ago. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? What does it mean to be a church that is centered on the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ, that Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves? What does it mean for a church to be animated by the gospel? And then after that, we went into what does it mean in light of the gospel message to be a church committed to reconciliation, a church committed to reconciliation, recognizing that we are born estranged from God, apart from God, and it is our mission as a church, it is our privilege as a church to go out into the city and into the community, into our neighborhoods, preaching this gospel and praying that God would reconcile people to himself and also people to one another. And then we talked about the ministry of renewal, that not only does it bring reconciliation, but it's a ministry of renewal, that we believe that God is on his throne making all things new, and that we're a part of that, that through the ministry of the gospel, that we see not only churches being renewed, but relationships being renewed, and cities and communities and neighborhoods being renewed, and that we are truly the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the midst of brokenness, we bring beauty. In the midst of darkness, we bring light. And as we wrap up um, looking at our vision series and what is it going to look like as we move forward together, what are those things that are going to animate our church moving forward? I want to talk, uh, talk about the last or that key part in our vision statement that talks about hope, that talks about hope. Because if, if the gospel is true, and that is the ministry that we are committed to and the message that we're committed to, a gospel-centered church, and we see it accomplished through the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people through the gospel, seeing renewal happen in our neighborhoods, and our community, all throughout South Florida, we truly believe that the church is not only the hope of the world, but the hope of South Florida. And so that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk about what does it mean specifically for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church to be the hope for South Florida. And we are going to look at Isaiah 25, Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. And we'll continue through Isaiah 26, verse 6. So Isaiah 25, verse 6 through Isaiah 26, verse six. Hear the word of God. Isaiah writes, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and 
he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on the mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in this place. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. This is the word of God. God, Lord, I pray that we would take this very robust, maybe even confusing for some of us passage. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, clarify it for us. Lord, help us to remember that your word is not just a historical document, but it is living and active. It is the very inspired word of God. And because of that, you have a word for every single person in this room this morning. So Lord, I pray that you would remove all distractions that you would remove anything that would keep us from hearing and seeing Jesus, for that is whom we've come to see, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we have the privilege of living in sunny South Florida, right? We are the envy of the country, maybe even for some, the envy of the world. Sunny South Florida, they call it after all, it has 300 miles of canals, 200 marinas, 50,000 registered yachts, and our beaches, I don't know if you knew this, were just uh, just named Blue Wave Certified. Blue Wave Certified, that means that our beaches, compared to all of the other beaches, are some of the most pristine beaches in all of the country. Yes, our beaches are Blue Wave Certified. Average low temperature in January, 58 degrees, not bad. And overall, throughout the course of a year, we have 3,000 hours of sunshine. Who wouldn't want to live in South Florida? It's sunny South Florida. And so in the midst of all of those statistics, one of the stats you never see on the news and one of the stats that you most likely won't hear about is this. Most recently, South Florida was named the most unchurched region in the country. South Florida was named the most unchurched region in the country. And so when we talk about Coral Ridge in particular, being the hope of South Florida. It might not only be the hope of South Florida, it might be the hope of our nation. Also most recently, Fort Lauderdale in particular, just the city of Fort Lauderdale, received the title of the most diverse city in Florida, taking the title that Miami had for so many years. So not only is there a need for Fort Lauderdale to go out, but we're recognizing now that the world is now coming to Fort Lauderdale. So we have the most diverse city in Florida, 
the most unchurched region in all of the country. And my question for you this morning, as you sit there, knowing this, and understanding what we aspire to be as a church, when we say we are the hope of South Florida, this is not just a catchy phrase on the inside cover of your bulletin. This is something that I pray inspires you. I pray that you go, this is, I understand why I am part of a church here in South Florida and I it no longer can just sit in my pew and do nothing about it. It's interesting, often when we think of Christianity, we think of the Bible, we often think of heaven. We think of the heavenly places. But actually in the book of Isaiah, uh, not just does Isaiah talk about heaven as we see heaven mentioned in Isaiah chapter six, that scene when Isaiah says, holy, holy, uh, he hears the angels reciting holy, 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 but actually all throughout the rest of Isaiah, it actually talks about cities and communities. It talks about neighborhoods like you and I live in every day. Actually, Isaiah mentions the idea of city 60 times throughout its 66 chapters. It mentions the idea of cities and communities and neighborhoods. And what Isaiah has done here, particularly in Isaiah chapter 25 and 26, it gives us an incredible picture of God and God's people and their relationship to the cities and the neighborhoods and the communities that they live in. So we're gonna look at briefly this morning in Isaiah 25 and 26, what is God's people, what, are our, what is our relationship to be you, the people of God, what is your relationship to be with the city and the communities and the neighborhoods that you live in? And we're actually gonna work uh, backwards. We're gonna look at Isaiah 26 first and then we'll go back to Isaiah 25. But it's in Isaiah 26 that we see a tale of two cities. Isaiah describes the history of the world by looking at two cities. And he basically says that you can boil down the history of the world into two different cities, that there are ultimately two cities. And we see it here in Isaiah 26, verse one through six. We see the city of God and we see the city of man. And they're pitted against each other. We see the city of God and we see the city of man. And in verse one through four, we see the city of God. And, and what does it say? It says, we have a strong set, city and he sets up, who's the he? It's God. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks and open the gates that the righteous nation might, the righteous nation that keeps faith might enter in and he keeps them in perfect peace. And so in verses one through four, Isaiah is describing the city of God, but quickly in Isaiah, in verse five, he moves to the city of man, but he says there's another city. And yes, there's the city of God that God has established and he has created and he has established salvation and he keeps the, the people that are faithful in perfect peace, those people that have faith in him and don't have faith in themselves. But then there's this other city in verses five and six. And it's the city of man. And what does this city look like? He calls it the lofty city. It's the city of man, it's the city of pride. 
It's the lofty city, and he says, they have been humbled, and they, they lay it, he lays it low, low to the ground. And so you have the city of God in verse one through four, the strong city. It's a city that is built on humility. It is a city that is built on God's salvation, not on our salvation. And then you have the lofty city, which is another word for pride. It's the city of pride. It's the prideful city. And it's interesting, where do we see the first city being built? We actually see it in Genesis, right, with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was the first skyscraper. And what do they say when they're building the Tower of Babel? They say, we will build this and make a name for ourselves. See, it was all rooted in pride and in arrogance and self-righteousness. We will build it, not God. It's not a city that's built by God, founded on his salvation. It is a city built by man. It is self-salvation, self-creation, self-identity. And here in Isaiah 26, we see these two cities pitted against each other, the city of God and the city of man. And it's interesting, looking at the lofty city, the city that's based on pride and self-salvation, it's all about self-creation and self-definition. That's the city of man in a nutshell. It's a city based on self-creation and self-identity making a name for ourselves, just like they did in Genesis in the Tower of Babel. And what, exa- what eventually happens? It says the poor are trampled and the needy are stepped on. You see, in the city of man, the city of man is marked by two things. It is marked by exhaustion and oppression. Why is the city of man marked by exhaustion? because it's all self-salvation, it's all self-creation. It's everybody, every man for themselves, every woman for themselves, trying to make a name and identity for themselves. And it's exhausting, because it's constantly trying to invent yourself and create your identity and create a name for yourself. Self-creation and self-salvation is always exhausting, but it also leads to what? Oppression, why? Because in, in the midst of trying to make a name for yourself, what are you doing? You're trampling upon others. Get out of my way, every person for themselves. It's all about me, it's all about the individual rising to the occasion, it's Tower of Babel all over again. We will make a name for ourselves. I don't really care about your name, all I care about is my name. And so the city of man is always marked by exhaustion and oppression. The city of man is a place where the orphans are fatherless. The city of man is the place where the homeless don't have a place to lie their head at night. The city of man is the place where girls are trafficked, where races and cultures war against each other, and where the unborn are murdered. Sounds familiar. It sounds all too familiar. The city of man. And so we have the city of man and the city of God. We have a tale of two cities here in Isaiah chapter 26. And, but what does it say about the city of God which is different than the city of man? He says in verse three, I will keep, Isaiah says, God, you will keep them in perfect peace. It's interesting, the the definition of peace there is shalom. The word peace is shalom. And it's not the peace that you and I are, it's not like a peace treaty. It's not not, not something you would read about on the news. Shalom, the idea of shalom was full flourishing, 
full and complete flourishing. And what he's saying is the people that live in the city of God will experience shalom, full peace, full flourishing, emotional flourishing and spiritual flourishing and physical flourishing and social flourishing. That is what marks the city of God. But it's interesting, Isaiah says, you will keep those people that live in the city of God in perfect peace. It's redundant because shalom is perfect. But Isaiah wants, what does he want to do here? He, he often repeats to emphasize. Anytime you see a word repeated in Hebrew, it is always to emphasize the point. It is the peace piece. It is the perfect, perfect peace. I think Paul writes about it when he says, it's the peace that passes all understanding. There is a peace that comes from God for his children, for his sons and daughters that keeps them in a peace, peace, a perfect, perfect peace that passes all understanding. And the reason it is a perfect, perfect peace is because the city of God marks the end of self-creation and marks the end of oppression. It marks the end of everyone warring against each other in order to get to the top. So the first thing that we see here in very important in understanding what the people of God, their role in being the hope of their city and the hope of their community, we have to understand that there are two cities fundamentally that God recognizes, the city of God and the city of man. But let's look at a second thing, second point, let's look at the location of the city of God. Because often we think of the city of God and we think of, we think of the heavenly city and we, we think of this strong city that is built by God and we think of it as something that is, a, that is far off, right? That basically right now, all, all we have is the city of man. We kind of have to suck it up. We have to deal with it. The, the only option is the city of man and, and someday far, far away in some distant galaxy, God will, will, will bring the city of, of God here and then we'll be renewed, then will be restored. But what does it say here? It says it in the present tense. Isaiah chapter 26, verse one, it says, we have a city. We have a strong city. Not one day we will have a strong city. Out in the far distance, in the far future, we will have this city. Isaiah is telling us that the city of God is now. It's current. Actually, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have it for the screens. Jesus talks about the city. And what does he say in Matthew 5, 14? He, looking at the people of God, the church, what does he say to them? You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Not one day you will be a city. He says, you, the church, are a city right now. Jesus, understanding all of this context from the Old Testament, everything about Isaiah, everything about the people of God and their role in their city, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, what Jesus is trying to communicate is that you are the city of God now. It's not something that's coming far, far from now. Many years from now, it is coming now. Jesus not only talks about being the city of God now, but turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 through 9, give you a little context here. Jeremiah is writing to who? He's writing to exiles. And to give you a little context of what's happening here in Jeremiah chapter 29, all of the Israelites have been captured, right? 
And they've been, they've been captured by the Babylonians. The evil Babylonians, the pagan Babylonians have captured the Israelites and they have exiled them to where? To Babylon. But it's very interesting. When we read the context of Jeremiah, it's not all of the Israelites are exiled to Babylon. You know who's exiled? The cultural leaders, the politicians, the leaders, the heads of the family. Why? Because they, the Babylonians knew if we could influence the cultural leaders and the heads of the home and the politicians and the spiritual leaders, we could annihilate an entire culture by capturing them. And it's interesting that they're, they're actually, when we read this in Jeremiah chapter 29, they, they're, they're kind of going against orders and they're camping out outside of Babylon. The Israelites are camping outside of Babylon and they're looking in, why? They had a decision to make. Yes, we could go in and be well-fed and, and, and have all of the amenities that are available to the Babylonians and instead of suffering out here in the wilderness and dying, but, but if we go in, we know that we will be annihilated. Our, our culture will be done away with, our beliefs will be done away with, our, our gods will be, our, 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 our spiritual life will be no more. And Jeremiah writes this letter through God, and he writes this, this letter to the exiles. And this is what he says as they're camped out trying to make this decision. Do we go in and just be annihilated and become like them? Or do we retreat to the suburbs and, and the rural lands and because we don't want to mess with the, with the, with the, with the pagans in, in Babylonia? What do we do? And God writes this letter to them. And it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he say? Keep on retreating? No. He says, build houses. Live in them. What? Plant gardens and, and eat their produce. What does he say? What is he saying? He's, he, he's saying, buy real estate. Engage in their market, invest, eat what they produce. He says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. God, I'm sure, is turning their paradigm upside down. Wait, if, if we go in, we're going to become just like them. We're going to become just like the Babylonians. Aren't we supposed to live separate from the world? God says, go all in. Buy their real estate, invest in their market, eat what they eat. But what's the difference? God says, but don't lose your identity. And what's their, where's their identity here? In multiplying. He says, I want you to become greater. I want you to become bigger. How? How does that happen? How do we fully engage and immerse ourselves in the culture, but still keep our identity as believers? Still continue to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Won't we become just like them? And this is the answer. 
He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What, what he's trying to say here, what Jeremiah is trying to, through God, trying to communicate to the people of God is go all in, immerse yourself in the culture, engage in culture, but multiply. But the way you keep your distinction is that you do not build another city of man, but in the midst of them, you build the city of God. You seek the welfare, or as other translations say, the prosperity and the flourishing of those people. You lay down your lives and show them that your life is not for you but you go in and serve them. And through service to them, when they begin to see that these God-fearing people came in here and our community and our neighborhood and our cities are now better off than when before they came in and our city and our families are flourishing and growing and there's prosperity and people are living and not killing each other, people will begin to notice. That is how you keep your distinction by being the hope in a hopeless world, by being light in the midst of darkness, by bringing something beautiful in the midst of brokenness. Move all in and get involved. Be different but stay distinct. And this can be for all of us. Your civic association, the city you live in, retirement community that you live in, wherever you are, may it be like the city of God in the midst of the city of man, that you would seek the prosperity and the flourishing of all people so that people might stop and pause and wonder, what is up with these people? These Christians at Coral Ridge, I don't believe what they believe. I don't even understand what they preach but they move our community and they make our city flourish in such a way we have to notice. See, we are the alternate city. Julian, a Roman emperor in the third century said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These these pious Galileans provide not only for their poor, but for our poor as well. You see, the citizens of the city of God are the very best citizens because we do not build a great life for us. We build a great life for others. We not only exist to make our lives great, we exist to make other lives flourish and grow and blossom. We don't even exist to make Coral Ridge great. Coral Ridge exists to make South Florida a great place to live. And 30 years from now, 30 years from now, I pray that people moving to South Florida don't come to South Florida and don't move here and live here and say, I love living in South Florida because of the miles of beaches and the blue wave certification and the restaurants and the yachts and the marinas. I say, we love South Florida because Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church is here. They're here in our midst, building the city of God in the city of man. 
They're the most generous, the most gracious, the most loving people we have ever encountered. And God forbid if Coral Ridge was to ever close its doors, the people of South Florida would weep. The people of South Florida would weep because we closed our doors. And I said, it will never be the same. What will happen to the, to the divides in our city? What will happen to our orphans and to our moms and to our widows and to our homeless population? What will ho- happen to the racial reconciliation that has happened in our midst over the past 30 years? What will happen to all of the children being educated and raised up as leaders in this community? What will happen to the people coming into church, hearing the good news of the gospel and being saved and their lives being changed forever? the most generous, the most gracious, the most loving. Read an article from Washington Post this week, uh, two weeks ago actually, it was interesting. Washington Post, title of the article was to attract young people to your church, you've gotta be warm, not cool. It says so many churches pour money and energy into flashy worship services meant to make teenagers and young adults think that church is cool, but it turns out cool isn't what young people want. Forget the rock band vibe and the flashing lights. Warm is the new cool. For our book, Growing Young, we researched more than 250 congregations. We spoke to more than 1,300 millennials, ages 15 to 29, and they told us the only thing we want is authenticity and connection. We want a place to call home. Do you know that millennials are the least likely generation to attend church in the history of civilization? This generation, 15 to 29, is the least likely to darken the doors of our church. And so let me put this into context for us. We are the most unchurched region in America trying to reach the next generation, which is the least likely to go to the church in the history of the world. And I ask you, what kind of church will we be? If we want to see Coral Ridge grow and be the beacon of hope that it has been for the last 60 years, for it to be the beacon of hope for the next 60 years, will we be marked by graciousness and generosity and warmth? So when then young people come to our church and they're sitting next to you and behind you in front of you, when they, you see them out in the city and in your community and your workplace, you are the first one to invite them, love on them, invite them into your home, be warm to them, connect them and be authentic with them because you say we care about the next generation here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. We want this to be a place of hope for them as well. Read this article this past week from a pastor for one month. He attended AA, not because he was an alcoholic, he attended AA because he wanted to know what it was like. So many people in his congregation had gone through AA, wanted to see what was the experience like, and he recalls this one experience in his 30 days attending AA. It says, one morning Kathy, I guess her age 35, joined us for the first time, and one look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful at 21. Now her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting, her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past month. She said, I have slept under bridges and for several nights been arrested, robbed. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore, but I just can't stop drinking. Next to Kathy was a rather 
large woman, Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. She reached with both arms towards Kathy, pulled her close, close to, to Kathy's face. She pulled her to her body. I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly in Kathy's ear. Honey, you know you're gonna be okay. You're with us now. You, we can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? Keep on coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness. It looked like Jesus. But I couldn't avoid the troubling question that morning. Could this have happened at my church? Would there have been a space for Kathy to tell her story? And would there have been a Marilyn to respond in that way? A church that offers the hope, the hope to a world that is desperate. And I'll end with this. What's the foundation of this hope? What is the source of this hope? How do we become, as Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, the city of God in the midst of the city of man, for the flourishing of our city and our neighborhood and our communities, so that we can be the hope of South Florida? Well, we see it in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And here's the key. Here is where our hope comes from. This is the foundation of our hope as a church, as a people of God, as we seek to build the city of God. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up Death forever. Isaiah here is talking about a veil, talking about a cast. In other translations, it actually says shroud. What's a shroud? It's a covering for dead people. And God here is saying, Isaiah is saying that God will go through the veil and the cast and the shroud of what? of death so that you might have hope. What? Yeah. Thousands of years later, there would be a man by the name of Jesus Christ who would come down fully God and fully man and he would come down as it's prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 25, he would come down and he would go through the shroud of death. He would go through the veil of death. He would go through the veil and the shroud of sin and darkness and brokenness and take it on for you. He would become broken so that you would become beautiful. He would die so that you could live. And that this morning is the foundation and the key of our hope. This future city where the city of man is done away with, not in a triumphalistic way. The city of man is not done away with by force and by oppression, but the city of of man is done away with because of Jesus Christ coming down and swallowing death himself. Being covered in the shroud of death so that we might live. The veil of sin, the veil of injustice, the veil of oppression, 
the veil of exhaustion. There is no greater motivation for you this morning to be the hope of South Florida as a church than to know that you have the greatest hope in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who has swallowed up death forever. Tim Keller says it best, most, most of my skeptical, secular, liberal friends say that they don't believe in the resurrection. But even if they don't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, social welfare, caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end it will make no difference at all? If the resurrection of Jesus did happen, however, that means there is infinite hope and all the reason in the world to pour ourselves out for the needs of our world. You see, the reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again and swallowed up death forever is the greatest reason and motivation that we can offer hope. See, the whole world offers hope. Politicians offer hope, leaders offer hope, strategies offer hope, politics offers hope, governments offer hope, but they're only rolling the dice. But we have a king and a savior, Jesus Christ, that we can go into our community and into our world and say, we're not rolling the dice here. You can bank on it. Because he swallowed up the very veil of death and darkness that you're longing to be alleviated from. And for some of you this morning, you're sitting there saying, I need hope, but husbands have promised hope. Families have promised hope and wealth has promised hope. My career has promised hope. Moving to South Florida has promised hope. Even pastors have promised hope. But in the midst of all of them, of all the broken promises, of all the unmet expectations, there stands one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Malcolm Muggeridge, writer and journalist from England, in 1980 says this, Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and the fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet but I've seen a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world that the establishment of the German Reich would last for a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown announce that he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all of the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquest, all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone with the wind. 
England now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with the dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. America haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways running and smog settling and troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the great victories of the Don Quixotes of media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone with the wind. But behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomists, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, and in whom, and through whom alone mankind may have peace. He is the person of Jesus Christ. I present him to you the way, the truth, and the life. And I ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? In the midst of a hopeless world, in the midst of broken dreams, in the midst of a dark veil that covers our homes and our cities and our communities and our nation and our world, do you know the one who has swallowed up this veil, this veil of death, this one who lived, who died, who rose again and longs to be your savior, your source of hope this morning? Two years before the founding pastor of this church died, he looked out into this congregation and he said, this church will do even greater things. At the time, I thought he was just being humble and this is what you're supposed to say at the end of your ministry. I was 20 years old at the time. I looked around this place and I said, maybe it's best days are behind. Could we really do any more here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church? But now that I stand here this morning and I look out and I see how God has sustained us, I see the faithfulness of God and bringing a new day here at Coral Ridge, I look out with all the confidence in the world and I say yes, this church will do greater things in this city and through our world. Believe it to be true. And me, our hope and our promise be until Jesus returns that Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church because of Jesus and his substitution for us, may we forever be for our city and for our world a beacon of hope.